an important piece about humanity is understanding we have emotion and we have logic. And understanding how both work in your brain will help you make better decisions or be present with your needs and accept what you decide rather than regretting it. We're Lane and Sherris, two clinicians who are obsessed with neuroscience and learning all the secrets behind the power of our brains. By learning more about how our brains work, we can use that knowledge to regain control of our minds and become happier, healthier people while positively impacting others. This is the Brain Blown Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to season three of the Brain Blown Podcast. As we continue to learn on this podcast, our brains impact us all the time. And in one of the ways is by the decisions that we make and how those decisions alter the course that our life will take. How do the decisions we make every day and the people we come in contact with change that course? How does understanding our brain better help us make decisions that play to our strengths, hold true to our values, and make our lives and the lives of others better? That's going to be a general focus for us this season, but today we're going to take a closer look at our own decision-making process. So in typical New Year's fashion, let's look back on some of the decisions that you made in 2023. What is a big life-altering decision you made last year? Did you make a big financial investment, like buy a house or a new car? Did you decide to have children or add a new member to your family? Did you go on a dream trip or vacation? Maybe change careers or move somewhere new? Now let's think about one specific day and the decisions that you made on that day. Did you snooze your alarm when it went off in the morning? What did you put on in the morning? Did you wash your face or brush your teeth? What did you make for breakfast? Was it coffee or tea you had? Hot or cold? How did you get to work? Did you take the usual route? What was your first task to get done? When did you have lunch? Etc. 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 Socrates proposes that human beings are complex things, too complex for human beings to understand. Hidden Brain's recent podcast covered this and stated, quote, we fall into patterns of behavior we don't always agree with. We have biases we don't always understand. And we have many things that impact the choices we make. The decisions we make in our lifetime have a lasting effect on us, no matter how small they may be. And in this episode... We're starting off by trying to understand the bigger picture. How do we make decisions? So this is the neuroscience of decision making. So even looking at the little decisions that we make every day, this seems like a completely complex but also totally simple process. So I'm thinking maybe first when it comes to decision making, let's zoom out a bit and look at the bigger picture mm -hmm. of not necessarily specific parts of the brain that are involved quite yet, but more what is involved sure. when we make decisions. Absolutely. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. I think an important thing when we go to look at decision making, I'm going to steal from Hidden Brain again, is quote, human beings do not know themselves. I think this so much goes back to the beginning of our podcast in season one, episode four. It's such an important lesson that you and I learned that has never left me, which is we act and then we make sense of it. Yeah. This is true for decision making as well, right? Because it fits within the action. However, like all other actions, we have spent a lifetime, a millennia, telling ourselves the opposite is true. We think every decision is so thought out. Everything we do, we think, oh, I've, this is why I did this thing. It clearly just makes sense. Yeah. That's not usually the case, actually. <laughs> is Oh, my God. There, there are sort of hidden things that impact what we do, why we take action, why we make the decisions we make. I think the beauty and the exciting thing behind this season is you and I are going after how to make the unseen seen. So what we learned also in both seasons one and two, is our brain is super adaptive. 
and continues to be, right? It's what makes human brains so incredibly unique. We've talked a lot about neuroplasticity, right? What fires together, wires together. Mm -hmm. And neuroplasticity happens all the time, whether you want it to or not. Sometimes it's conscious, but often it's happening unconsciously just because. That's literally how your brain adapts. And Mm -hmm. it's why we are the species that we are. But in addition, part of that adaptation is how we're consistently learning and making sense and understanding the world. We got deep into that into season two, learning about how all of our senses transcribe information into our memory banks and the fact that we code constantly. That was one of the most mind-blowing things, actually, or brain-blowing things uh, from season two (laughs) for me was we code all the time. Yes. All the time. And we don't necessarily know that we're coding. Right? Mm-hmm. We can have a reaction to a smell and be like, oh, that smells like home and have no idea why. Or the opposite, right? Perry talking about the guy's aftershave and how this this child would become agitated around this individual, not having a clue why he was so agitated and on edge, only to find out that his, his abusive father was wearing the exact same scent. Mm-hmm. So Hagen, Dalgish, Simpson and Prevost state, quote, the human brain remains plastic in order to flexibly and optimally cope with the changing world. But we learned in season two how we do this. We code. We do it all the time with all of our senses. And But they will also state that we do adaptive coding, meaning that we code meaning into memories pretty much all the time. Mm. The aftershave, for example. This is how we adjust and change, right? It isn't just about the fact that we learn all the time or that we have neuroplasticity to change our brain. It is that we are consistently taking in information and saying, what does this new knowledge do for me? And how does this new knowledge impact the way that I see the world? So that coding can also be changed, but it isn't necessarily easy. Mm-hmm. This coding, this memory impacts the parts of our brain that fire when we make decisions. And as we showed specifically in the last episode of our, our last season, not all of this is conscious. We code well before we even have verbal memories. Wow, holy crap. So you had mentioned that the coding that we do, this memory that we give to these things that we code, impact what parts of our brain fire when we make decisions. Yes. So does that mean it's almost like everything we learn and absorb in life as we code it will be affecting our decisions? Potentially, yes. Holy crap. Because that's what makes us so adaptive, right? Mm-hmm. And- and we learned, right, it's even bigger than that because epigenetics is a thing and ancestral knowledge is a thing. Oh, right. So some of this is actually even coded into our DNA, right? Oh, right. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. It's not even your experience. It's your grandparents' Sometimes, experience. Yeah, absolutely. Because your grandparents' response to stress changes your parents' yep. response to stress, changes yours. So, yes, there's so much that does by nature impact us and this is why we are so adaptive why we can be dropped into different parts of the world and just pick up and go right wow it's strength but it as we've covered a lot in this podcast sometimes it's a two-sided coin yeah holy crap okay so decision making is clearly a huge thing and so many Mm -hmm. things in our brain are actually involved in the decision making process yes i don't know if we're ready for specific brain areas yet but can you give me maybe a little bit more of a zoom in of what sort of things are we going to think about or experience like or what in our life is going to be affecting like you mentioned that we code all of these Mm -hmm. things and what we code matters yeah and how we code it matters yeah but what are some of those things that we do code that are going to affect it? It depends on what decisions we're trying to make. Oh, gosh. So essentially, different decisions and different things that impact those decisions will fire different parts of our brain for decision making. So what it looks like for you is you're deciding, am I going to have coffee or tea? Am I going to work out or sleep in? Am I going to change jobs or continue on this job? Those all look like decisions to you. Those are actually all firing different parts of your brain. Oh, boy. <laughs> They're different neural networks. Okay. Yeah. And the way that that particular part of the choir sings together will vary. So is fear involved, right? 
if there's enough of this, will it impact me in a bad way as we've very much learned? Can yeah. I get out of this? Can I survive this? That impacts one part, right? Mm-hmm. Is this financial? Does it have a long-term benefit? Is it emotional? Will it affect somebody else? Will it affect my relationships? That's a completely different part and so on and so forth. Wow. So for example, cost-benefit analysis happens all the time. And this is to quote Simpson and Balsam, this is physical effort, mental effort, time loss of other opportunities, discomfort, danger, right? That that's those all costs mm-hmm. versus is this fulfilling a psychological or physiological need? Is this helping to escape harm, avoiding cost? That is occurring in your brain. And to do that cost benefit, we're pulling from different pieces. How do I understand is there a risk, right? That's ancestral knowledge of yes. this cave might have bears. Do I go into caves? Right. <laughs> Why do I have this sinking feeling of caves, even though I've never been in one before? <laughs> so all of that can come into play. And depending on the need, the cost-benefit analysis changes due to things like hormones or neural changes. You make different decisions when you're hungry because different parts of your brain are firing to impact the decisions you make when you're hungry. Wow. Okay, so just clarifying really quickly too, because cost-benefit analysis sounds kind of important for us to know on this episode. Maybe, maybe not. But it sounds like that's essentially humans trying to turn decision-making into a math equation. Yeah. It is this plus this minus this equals this decision. Mm -hmm. Would that be accurate? It is. Okay, cool. And some of that happens almost simultaneously. It happens very quickly. Some of it happens with the length of your times, right? Do I want coffee this morning? Do I have coffee grounds? Do I want to grind up my coffee grounds? Where are my coffee grounds? You know, I really do want coffee. This is fine, right? That's a quick, simple cost-benefit analysis. Yes. Whereas something like, do I want to change jobs? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> has a lot more obvious cost-benefit analysis that yes. might come into play. Gotcha. But, but we kind of do this as what they're proposing is by nature to make a decision that implies that there are other options available. Mm-hmm. So when we're looking at other options, we have to figure out what is the best decision for me potentially in this moment and or long term. Mm. Okay. That makes sense. Mobs Hagen, Dalgish, Sinston, and Prevost say, quote, They're building off a set of well-known neural systems. We're back to those neural networks, right? And recent insights from human and comparative neuroscience have demonstrated that midbrain regions are involved in phylogenically older adaptations such as reflect, fight, fly, right? Prefrontal cortex versus midbrain. What's going on in terms of our decision-making, right? Mm -hmm. And our midbrain is always our alarm system. Exactly. Really keeping out for safety. Toddler, middle child, that screams at you though, right? Yes. And so... There's also the question of how strongly they're interconnected and how much they're in competition, right? So how much is your prefrontal cortex in competition with your amygdala? Mm. So in other words, we've learned that not only does our brain kind of make decisions all the time, and it rarely just makes decisions using one part of our brain. Things like safety, rewards, pleasure, emotion, fear, long-term benefits, short-term benefits, occasional sprinkling of logic are how we make decisions. However, we think pretty much all the time that we make decisions only based on logic. Clearly, I did that. It was the logical thing to do. Interesting. Okay. This this is starting to make sense. When we say making decisions based on logic, would this be an example of making what you would describe as a conscious decision because back towards the beginning we also Mm. mentioned that with this whole decision making process sometimes we make conscious decisions and sometimes we don't yes obviously that makes sense like when your body is getting into play especially like if it thinks it's afraid it your body reaction is going to be something maybe not that you don't decide consciously your body decides for you yes sort of thing and that would be the subconscious example Mm -hmm. would that mean when you're thinking of something like using logic that would be an example of a conscious decision? Potentially, because not that necessarily it's true or not, but more what is true is what are we trying to justify and why? We don't feel the need to justify unconscious decisions and our use or lack thereof of logic because they don't feel as need to be justifiable for why we made the decisions we did. But once we start to feel the need to justify them, we immediately go back to, well, it was logical. 
Wait, why was that so philosophical? I think we're on the wrong podcast here. I'm sorry. <laughs> I ain't got here. Wait, but that does, no, that does make a lot of sense, honestly. And I think an important piece that's also crucial is not only do we think we make these big decisions based off of logic, right? we think others do as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why we think people are... <sighs> sorry to say, stupid, mm -hmm. because they made a really illogical decision. Exactly. When in reality, very few of our decisions are based on logic, and I would say almost none of them are based solely on logic. Wow. Okay. So if we're not as logical as we think we are <laughs> when we make decisions, what, what has a bigger stake? What are we making these decisions more so based on? It depends on what decision you're making and when and how you're making that decision. It could depend on things like safety, feeling interconnected, mm. needing to fulfill a base need. We are also highly emotional. A new field of study is neuroeconomics, the study of the science of the neuroscience behind economics. And hardcore, old school people in economics said, well, clearly people are just going to make a cost-benefit analysis and come out with the right decision. And that's not how people made decisions at all mm. because emotions come into play. I will make a different choice to invest in you if I know you, if I feel safe with you, if I feel comfortable with you. Yes. That actually could have better financial benefits simply because if there's something wrong, I can actually talk to you versus somebody I don't know who I may not be able to say, hey, maybe we should pull out of this investment at this time, mm. right? Mm -hmm. So there are tons of things that come into play whenever we make any decision, but it depends on what kind of decision we're making. Yes. That makes sense. Okay. Uh, and given all of this that we've covered so far – how do you think that understanding the neuroscience could potentially give us better control or maybe help us like understand the problem that we're facing mm -hmm. with this decision? I feel like I'm looking for something mm -hmm. hands on of totally. this is so great. What are we doing? What with are it? we going to get to do with <laughs> it? You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think part of it is understanding. So the fallacy is we make a decision and we're like, yep, that was a logical decision. That was the best decision for me at this time. Whatever will have you. That neuroception of I do something and then I make sense of it. Mm -hmm. The smarter way to do things, and this is actually also true from the coming from the Hidden Brain podcast as well, what they were talking about, is there is real value in understanding what impacts your decision. The more that you have insight into for example, all the different parts of your brain that are potentially screaming at you at any given moment. What's screaming the loudest? Why is that screaming? Is that a need that I need fill? And if I fill that need, will it change how I make this decision? The ability to take a step back and say, what is influencing me? Does this matter? How does this change my choices? Hmm. I think... An important piece about humanity is understanding we have emotion and we have logic. And understanding how both work in your brain will help you make better decisions or be present with your needs and accept what you decide rather than regretting it. Mm, I love that. Well, before we shove a bunch more logic in your face, or in your ears, <laughs> I should say, this is a podcast, let's take just a short little break, and then we'll jump into specific brain stuff. Diving now into the parts of the brain specifically, we're zooming in even more here. Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned earlier, so many different places in our brain will actually light up when we're making decisions, but there are also different places that light up based on the decision that you make. Absolutely. So let's highlight some of those places. Sure. What areas of the brain are we looking at that are actually involved in sure. decision making? So for example... Big surprise, we know that your amygdala might be firing when you're making decisions, right? Mm -hmm. Specifically in regards to how much is this decision based on fear? Mm. And I will argue, and listeners, please feel free to come at me with this one, 
that most of your important decisions, if not all of your important decisions, are based in fear. It's either, well, I guess it would be simply avoiding a fear. Absolutely. The really important things, we're going to always look at the need of safety because it's impossible to make a really important decision without thinking about our safety and the safety of others. So therefore, our amygdala is firing whenever we make a really big decision. Okay, you're set f- yourself up for this. Are you ready? I'm going to ask you Go three. I'm going to give you three examples. You're going to direct me to why it's safety. Sure. Buying a house. <laughs> Buying a house could leave you destitute. Buying a house, mm-hmm. you could buy something that has major issues. What if the inspection guy was slacking that day and didn't figure out that like, oh, you need to redo all of your piping or your wiring's really bad and the whole thing could start on fire? What if your roof isn't actually as solid as it looks like it is and then that's thirty or $40,000 you may not have lying around? What if it's actually in a neighborhood that you don't feel safe in? What if it is potentially in a neighborhood that's about to, I don't know, get a gigantic tire burning plant or a massive road driven through it? (laughs) Okay, point taken, point taken. Here's your next one. Saying yes to a proposal. (laughs) You are literally talking about a lifetime decision and linking your life with somebody else permanently. Do you know how tricky it is to get divorced? What happens if you're arguing all the time? What happens if you're miserable all the time? You potentially are going to raise children with this person. What if you utterly end up completely miserable? How is it going to feel to be a divorcee? How is it going to feel to go back into the dating life after you've been divorced? What about that isn't fearful? Well, maybe we should have had a disclaimer <laughs> for this episode. So sorry. <laughs> oh, it's okay. Oh my gosh. Wow. No, that was wow. Yes, you are another... literally talking to the clinician who specializes in anxiety. Hundred percent. Yeah, we're you're nailing this. You're nailing. This. Okay, let me try to think of one more that might be a little less obviously directed towards safety. Sure. This might be a two-parter. Choosing to stay in a job that you hate. Or making the decision to change jobs. Okay. Staying in the job that you hate. Am I going to hate 40 plus hours of my day every day? What does this mean for the rest of my career? Will my career ever advance? Will I be able to achieve the things I really want in life? What does this mean for the meaning of my life? Conversely, What happens if I leave? What happens if the next job is worse? What happens if I look like a job hopper? What happens if my boss is that much worse? What happens if my coworkers all hate me? What if happens if there's absolutely no advancement in that job forever? What if I'm consistently stuck in this route of I feel sort of miserable, so I should jump for a job, but I feel sort of miserable, so I should jump for a job? What does that mean for my long-term career? What happens if I get laid off? What happens if I don't have any money? What happens if I end up unemployed? Okay. Amygdala will fire consistently when you make these decisions because there is long-term cost-benefit analysis you actually can't completely guess on. Yes. And they will have major impacts to your safety and overall well-being. It is natural to ask these questions. It is absolutely natural to have these doubts, but it is important to know that this is impacting your decision and that you don't also have to operate in fear if you don't want to. Yeah. Wow. That was, that was really great. And honestly, I can't say I was expecting that for the first part of the brain that we started talking about, honestly, but neither was I. Um, beautiful. Really awesome. Okay. Let's continue down this road. Our amygdala is involved. What else? One of the major pieces is our orbital frontal cortex. Hmm. Okay. Excellent. It sounds like it's time for a hand model of the brain. I I personally do remember where our orbital frontal cortex is. But for potential new listeners, will you give us a quick 
10 second recap of the hand model of the brain Absolutely. and then let us know where it is. We should do that for our amygdala as well since we just spent a lot of time on that. So sure. we're going to take our hand model of the brain. We're going to put our thumb against our palm. We're going to wrap our fingers around that thumb. This is your hand model of the brain, your wrist and the base of your hand is your brain stem. That mid where your thumb is and kind of the midsection of your meaty part of your palm, if you will, is your midbrain. And everything that is kind of nubbly and bubbly is your prefrontal cortex. So your amygdala is basically sitting where your thumb is. That is yes. in that midbrain, right? It's buried deep into the brain. And your orbital frontal cortex actually is pretty much exactly where your fingertips and nails are. Is the part sort of right behind your eyes? So don't do this. But if you stuck your finger in your eyes and continue to push in, that would be your orbital frontal cortex. But if gotcha. you notice, notice how close it sits to things like your midbrain and your brainstem. Yeah, like... They're like next door neighbors to your amygdala. So yes, so it's part of your prefrontal cortex, but it also is connected. So therefore, can sing a little easier with midbrain and brainstem. Yep, can have make connections. <laughs> Wang, Weisserman, Banjuri, and Planger state the ability to respond flexibly to an ever-changing environment relies on the orbital frontal cortex. They were specifically studying how the orbital frontal cortex takes sensory information and combines it with, quote, predicted outcomes to enable flexible sensory learning in humans. This is the coding we were mentioning, right? We adjust to constantly change to our ever-changing environment mm -hmm. through our orbital frontal cortex. And it's taking in all that coding. Think, I mean, it's really like right behind your eyes. It's right by your nose, which we learned is also really close to everything that your mouth is dealing with. It's near all of your senses. It's near all of that coding. Yes. It's part of your prefrontal cortex. It's near your amygdala. It kind of helps you go, that's a lot of information. What do I do with it? Uh-huh. And specifically, an important piece that their study learned was was that it helps us understand that code, positive, negative, neutral, other, and helps us determine if outcomes are good or bad or other. Oh my gosh. Okay. Little throwback to season two right at the very end. This is totally what happens with trauma, isn't it? Yes. This is what we talked about. If we learn to code stress early on in life as dare I call it neutral, but at least not as a life crippling negative, yes. then we can handle the big T traumas that enter our life more healthily because mm -hmm. we've coded a more healthy, a more adaptable way to deal with the negative, to deal with the stress. Which is only feasible when we have the tools to be able to do that. When it feels like stress, we can manage. When we have people around us to support us, that helps grow the orbital frontal cortex as opposed to letting your amygdala run wild. Yes. It's makes one of sense. those things helping keep your amygdala in balance. Holy crap. That makes sense. So the, this study is stating we have to adapt to survive. That's human beings in a nutshell. We've been constantly working to adapt to survive. And we do this based on prediction and evaluation. This is how we do decision making. Mm. The orbital frontal cortex is known to have, quote, widespread connectivity to sensory areas, as we just covered, yeah. as well as cortical and subcortical areas related to memory, learning, and attention. So the medial frontal cortex encodes the reward value and the lateral orbital frontal cortex helps assign credit. Wow. Here is a thing. What do I think of this thing, right? This is a smell, a sound, a touch, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then the medial comes in and says, hmm, I'm going to let you know uh, what that value has to us. And then the orbital frontal cortex says, well, that's what that means. Thus, our orbital frontal cortex in its entirety is consistently impacted when we are trying to use recall, which we do all the time, mm. to assess if this could go good or if it could go poorly. Specifically, this is, quote, encoding the prediction error in the face of the environmental changes, thereby updating associating representation in other brain areas and ultimately guiding adaptive behavior. Wow. So this area is it is the key. It's this is it's a significant impact. Wow. Yes. Holy crap. I'm also not surprised to see that the orbital frontal cortex is so close to our eyes and our nose mm -hmm. and even our throats in a way, because mm -hmm. if we're taking in all of these senses, that part of the brain is right there, yep. ready to receive it. Yep. That's why it has so much value, right? Because we code all the time. That is how we make sense of the world. Yeah. 
is we're constantly being like that color, that scent, that sound, that combination of things has X value. Mm -hmm. That's how I understand. I'm sitting in my living room. I am drinking tea. I am watching a show that kind of reminds me of the show I saw when I was seven. Wild. That's life. Yeah, it is. So other areas that do have impact will also remind you of things we specifically covered in season two. That would be your mesolimbic and mesocortical dopamine productions. This is the activation of that ventral tagmental area and those nucleus accumens. We covered this in our episode on chemical dependency, oh. how much this can literally rewire our whole brain. Oh, yeah. Because these things specifically fire when something feels pleasurable, when mm -hmm. we enjoy something. Fellows states the mesolimbic dopamine system is specifically thought to play a role in, quote, the unconscious biasing of actions. Why, when we become addicted to something, we do something that doesn't make any sense at all. Mm. And as we learned in the last season, this is really, really active in focusing our attention and helping us to make decisions when it comes to reward processing and decision making. Lots of research has shown that this fires pretty hard and we learned it can rewire the whole brain so that we can be only focused on this if we're not very careful. But we also learned that joy and pleasure are a requirement, right? Yes. It's a bucket we have to fill. Mm -hmm. We have to fill some sense of like, do the thing to get the thing. And if we don't do that, your body will find a way to fill it for you. Wow. And that's when we start making not necessarily the best decisions. Right. So it's so important to remember that that comes into play because that could impact us making very bad decisions on the short term that can really negatively impact our long term. Baron Hernstein Prelak, as well as Lipschiz, state an oversimplification of decision making is that there are three interrelated processes. Essentially, we identify options, we evaluate, and we make a choice. One of the big things is how we evaluate. Mm. Nazgavi, yeah. Shiv, and Beecher state, quote, it does seem clear that the ventral and medial prefrontal cortex mediate some or many aspects of reinforcement processing. So for the example, as we mentioned a little earlier, this has come up in the field of neuroeconomics, which originally believed that clearly humans would make decisions based on a cost-benefit analysis, specifically using, quote, a, a rational Bayesian maximization of expected utility, i.e. basic mathematical probability. Okay, so again, they're using math to determine an outcome, essentially? Bayesian is essentially statistics. It's a system for describing uncertainty, using a mathematical language of probability. That all seems fitting to economics, you know, mm -hmm. I'll just accept that. However, what they discovered is that this could only be true if humans, quote, were equipped with unlimited knowledge, time, and information processing power. As we are not computers, this is not the case. Thus, the assumption that we do things based solely on a logical equation of a cost-benefit analysis is not actually possible. Robots and computers have way more information than we do as humans, so they can kind of use this process, but we literally can't because we can't hold that much information. We can't. Is that fair to say? Yes. Okay. A supercomputer could, potentially. You are not a supercomputer. And other things come into play. And that sometimes has better value than what a supercomputer could actually give you in the long run. Right. That makes sense, too. I also want to emphasize this importance on how we evaluate. Because though it is simple, I feel like these steps are kind of easy to remember. You mm -hmm. know, like first... We identify options, then we evaluate those options, and then we make a choice, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like all of the other things that we had listed towards the beginning of this episode would fall under this step in the process of how we evaluate. Because mm -hmm. the brain obviously first identifies common areas of things to be aware of when we're making a decision. Mm -hmm. Whether it's like, oh, you've seen this before, so maybe consider this before you make this decision. Totally. Whatever that is in the process. But other things like safety, pleasure, emotions, etc. <laughs> seem to hugely affect the evaluation part. Mm -hmm. Because like you had mentioned, you kind of hinted at, if you're super hungry, then the time to evaluate will probably end up being shorter and maybe a simpler decision. Instead of thinking of the entire meal that you cook for dinner, you're probably making a PB&J. 
Well, not only that, but depending on how hungry you are, depends on how much energy you actually have to compute in the first place. You are not filled with infinite energy. Your brain takes up 20% of your energy all on its own. That's fair. Sometimes we are just too hungry to use all of our brain. Wow. Yeah. So yes, so many other things actually do come into play. Mm. Naskovic, Shiv, and Bachera found most decision-making is impacted by emotion and biases. Yeah. We don't make logical choices because we don't have infinite knowledge or infinite time or infinite energy. And unlike what humans would like to think, which is clearly the more important the decision, the more logic we have, the reverse is actually found to be completely true. The higher the risk. <laughs> Sorry. Hang on. You're saying, we, we, we did this as an example, but that hit differently for me. You're saying that pretty much everything we think is wrong. <laughs> the decisions that you make, even if you give them all the time and the consideration, you're really just going with your gut. <laughs> is that what that says? It's you potentially are okay. going with your gut and... Sometimes you think you wouldn't, but that's what you end up doing because you just kind of run out of time or energy or motivation or spoons or the ability to analyze every possible option. All the what-ifs I just listed yes. five, ten minutes ago probably gave a slew of people a little bit of anxiety, yes. right? We don't have the capacity to always do all of that. Yeah. So that's not an easy thing on the body. That's fair. So yes, this gets impacted. The higher the risk and the more the uncertainty, the more we lean on gut and emotion because we just don't always have the capacity to do anything else. This gets impacted and navigated by our ventral medial prefrontal cortex. And you and I know if that area is not working as well as we would like it to, we often make choices that are detrimental to our well-being. Mm. Welcome to the reason why this podcast exists. Everything in life would be very different if things like our ventral medial prefrontal cortex just naturally worked. It, uh, it doesn't always. And we know that. Right. Mm. And specifically what this study looked at was what happens if we know for a fact that there's damage. So they were actually looking at things like traumatic brain injury that were specifically hitting this area. Mm -hmm. Not uncommon in neuroscience. In fact, has informed the history of neuroscience of X area of the brain is damaged. What does that do to the human? Look, now we know what that does. Yes. Oh, yeah. The guy who had a pipe go through his head. We were Absolutely. like, oh, this part of the brain's damaged. What happened to him? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> that yes. is all of neuroscience. It is a little gruesome. I highly recommend the dueling neuroscience if you would like a history of that. It's a fantastic book. So <laughs> one of the things we've noticed is when we have too much damage to that ventral medial prefrontal cortex... We don't learn from our mistakes. Oh. We will make risky choices and we'll make them over and over again. An important thing about this study is that participants who had clear damage to this area made very poor choices specifically when emotion was involved and could not learn from their mistakes. But, quote, intellect and problem-solving abilities were largely normal. This specifically showed that decision-making was not impacted by necessarily knowledge, comprehension, attention, or memory, but their emotions appeared to be impacted. Also with this particular study, we noticed that with damage to that particular area, they read as flat and struggled to read emotional cues. So we know that that area really is something we use to understand emotions. Mm. And now we know that Emotions help us make sense of decisions yes. and help us understand long-term benefits, specifically how to learn from our mistakes. So it shows that the ventral medial prefrontal cortex helps us, quote, use emotions to aid in decision-making, particularly decision-making in personal, financial, and moral realms. This also helps us show that no matter what, quote, emotions play a role in guiding decisions, yep. especially in situations in which the outcome of one's choices in terms of reward or punishment are uncertain. Mm, gotcha. The study also found that damage to the amygdala impact decision making, no big surprise, specifically in that it became more difficult to understand those rewards and punishment. It became harder to predict the future. What happens when we get locked down in fear? We feel like future is impossible. Oh, yeah. Your amygdala doesn't even, I feel like it doesn't even have the ability to think of the future. It's just concerned of you right now. You are absolutely correct on that one. Nicely said. That makes sense. So what happens? As we have kind of discussed, essentially we learn and code all the time. 
And when we are coding, we connect that to emotion and reward, and that is a part of that memory. When we make decisions, we have a need to review our past information to guide our future actions. What have I already learned that will help me in this particular case? And then we try to take all that information and weigh the pros and cons. And as we review our options, those body memories that are coded are activated and reviewed via our ventral medial prefrontal cortex. And we have a sensory memory of that. Nakvi, Shiv, and Beecher state, quote, this can occur in two ways. The mapping of body emotion states at a cortical level, such as within the insular cortex, gives rise to consciousness. That's what human beings call gut feelings. I'm going to go with my gut about this. Interesting. You are not going with your gut. You are going with your insula. Love it. Oh my gosh. Nude t-shirt. Nude (laughs) t-shirt. Love it. Specifically, feelings of desire or aversion that are attributed to specific behavioral outcomes. The mapping of body states at a subcortical area, such as within your mesolimic dopamine area, as we covered before, right? Okay. This occurs in a non-conscious fashion. It's going on behind the scenes and it didn't bother to inform you, by the way, these areas of the brain are firing. This is what they do and this is why they're doing it. Mm. So we start to feel like this is a great idea or maybe not a great idea (laughs) without necessarily knowing exactly what all our options are or why we feel aversion to something. Right. So does this disgust us? Do we feel uncomfortable by it? Then our insula is getting involved. Are we afraid? Our amygdala is getting involved. Do we sense immediate rewards? That's our mesolimbic ventral tegmental nucleus accumbens. Is it pleasurable specifically? Then those areas are happy and firing. Uh-huh. Higher the risk, the more the amygdala, the higher the insula activation, specifically if the insula is trying to help us gauge a safe response, specifically if it connects to moral impacts as well. Mm. So that is an MRI study done by Sanfree, Ryling, Arson, Nystrom, and Cohen, which specifically also looked at is fairness coming into play. And an important thing I'd love to do a lot more with this season, does this affect other people? Now our insula is also involved. If it's emotional, that also changes what we're feeling, specifically if It's bringing up our historical memories because that's our ventral medial prefrontal cortex, but it is potentially also, if we've coded it, our orbital frontal cortex because we're adjusting to the world. Is this monetary? Then our stradial is also active in our midbrain area, and it's potentially around dopamine. What is going on in the brain? I don't know. It depends on what you're deciding. (laughs) Because all of these could be coming into play at any given time, and they're working so much in a choir right it's a neural network that Mm -hmm. says i'm making this type of decision this part of my brain is firing or not a lot more than just that you know left brain logic stuff we like to claim right literally right (laughs) oh my gosh (laughs) yes and with that we're going to take a quick break We have already covered so much in this episode. It kind of sounds like what we've covered in this episode could be its own season. And in fact, it pretty much is going to be. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it hasn't been too much, but we're hoping that this episode is an overview of everything we're going to dive into more deeper this season. Mm-hmm. We'll be looking more specifically at desire in decision making. What are the things that we like What are the things that we don't like? What are the things that we hate? And how do those things play into this decision making? We'll then go even wider and look at the influence that our decisions make on others and how their decisions influence us. And an even bigger scope onto how do all of our collective decisions impact change and the world that we live in. So know that there is so much more to come. I'm going to give a quick summary of what I feel like have been the things I've taken away. And then Lane, please let me know if there are any main pieces that I've missed and we'll fill in those gaps. What I understand now from decision making is that it is a complex full brain experience, whether it seems like the most simple decision or one of the hardest decisions of your life. We know some of the parts of the brain that light up 
based on the decision you're making. Not getting too specific. Your amygdala may fire, especially if there's some fear around it. Your orbital frontal cortex is the hub of decision making. I'm just going to call it that because it is where all of the sensory things that you are taking in from the world go first. Mm -hmm. It is where coding begins. And how you code that information is really important because you're going to look back on it to try to make a decision. Mm -hmm. But there are other things that also impact that decision. It could be your safety, which we, of course, was the amygdala that came into play, but even things like your reward system Mm -hmm. and how much that will be impacted by the decision that you make. We also mentioned towards the end gut decisions Mm -hmm. and what's actually going on. It's not your gut. It's your insula. That will be a new t-shirt. <laughs> I love it. Add along, it to our Patreon. Yes. And then along with that, what we will continue to dive into later on in this season is the moral implications of your decision and how your decisions might be affecting others or how you perceive that they could affect others mm-hmm. and how that changes the decision that you ultimately make. Absolutely. So... I want us to end this podcast with a really simple question. Sure. How do we make better decisions? Part of it is knowing what's going on. You and I talk about that all the time. Knowing is kind of half the battle. Yes. Right? Types of decision making change and are impacted based on what's going on in your body, specifically in regards to that decision. We don't make all decisions the same. Literally, parts of your brain change and what's firing and how it's firing together will shift. And that's both for the state that you're in when the coding happened. Yes. As well as the state that you're in when you're looking back on that coding and you're diving through the files or whatever. Yes. Oh, wow. And they impact each other potentially exponentially, not just additionally. Yes. So we also potentially don't even make the same decisions based on when we're hungry versus when we're not. (laughs) When our hormones come into play, your whole body exists as one unit and it all impacts each other regardless of how Western medicine likes to look at it. It's one unit. And it so things like, you know, your pancreas affect your decision making. Knowing what might be impacting your decisions allows you to understand your own human behavior at a greater level and impact the surrounding situations to do so. Helps you understand others. One of my favorite quotes for almost 20 years has been, we judge ourselves by our intentions. We judge others by their actions. This gives us insight into intentions, both ours and other people's, and how they have packed our actions. We've learned in previous seasons, the part of your brain that activates for long-term rewards requires way more energy than the rest of your brain. (laughs) We can't actually use that part of your brain that says like, hey, this is good in the long run, but not so great in the short run, right? I'm giving up money now so that I can have money when I need to retire. Mm -hmm. We can't actually use it if we're under-resourced. Want to eat better? I really hope you slept well last night. Knowing this helps us prepare. Specifically in regards to important decisions, we know that we need to be more resourced to do it. It's maybe okay to say, I need to sleep on this. Or, I'm kind of hungry right now. I'm going to go eat something and come back to you. It's also important to not beat ourselves up so much when we struggle to make decisions that we were hoping that we would. Why do I keep backsliding on my goals? Well, what part of my brain is firing? I may not be a bad person, but I might actually just need to eat or sleep more or drink more water or, you know, take care of myself at all. Taking a step away from this, taking a step away and just Blaming ourselves for the decisions we did or did not make. Blaming others for the decisions they did or did not make. Well, that person is just stupid. That person is just impulsive. Sure. 
maybe they didn't have access to the right part of their brain to make them super intelligent. Maybe their amygdala was having a temper tantrum. Maybe they're under-resourced. Maybe they're just not in a great place right now. It's okay to have that insight, both for ourselves and for others, because it allows us to be a little bit more gentler. Being more gentler honestly helps us create a more patient, understanding, empathetic, and better world. We don't need to be so angry all the time. We've learned, right, that does more damage to your amygdala than you activate with your amygdala, and we've all learned how well that goes, right? (laughs) It is better to instead, whenever we can, take a step back. That's mindfulness. Mindfulness is in a nutshell, right? The reason why we focus on that so much when your brain sings in harmony, practicing mindfulness is operating without judgment. It's a rare quality we have to learn and practice and like use like a muscle or we don't have the ability to do it, right? Mm -hmm. What this whole season is, what this whole episode is, is here's another way to take a step back and look at yourself without judgment. Look at yourself instead with kindness, understanding, and insight. Really wonderful. Oh, great answer as well. Thank you so much, Lane. As we look towards next month, for those listeners who may have been with us since season one or dived in last season, we like to experiment with the episodes that we create and their sizes, just kind of based on what works and what our listeners really enjoy. We've gotten a lot of great feedback on the mini episodes. And so for this season, we while we want to continue to keep our long episodes at least every other month because they are the heart of our podcast... What we want to try this season is using the next month to dive into these bigger episodes a little bit more in detail or maybe more specifically. We want to find some tools that we can highlight for you to really capitalize on the topics that we talked about in the main episode so that you can feel like you have a lot more tangible hands-on use for the info that you're learning. So be on the lookout for a few mini episodes next month. Thanks for listening to the Brain Blown Podcast. This podcast is created and produced by Lane and Sherris with music by James Austin. To learn more about this episode, head over to brainblownpodcast.com for script notes, visuals, and any resources we mentioned. If you enjoy this content, your support and involvement means everything to us. Consider contributing to our Patreon at whatever level feels comfortable for you. Visit patreon.com slash brainblownpodcast for more info.